This is Party Wall Pro, the podcast where surveyors tell you how they first started and how they've grown their business, making it easier for you to get to the top. Hi, hi, and welcome to another edition of um, Party Wall Pro, the podcast. It's been a while again, and I'm really sorry. Um, the reason why it's been so long is uh, is because yeah, we've been busy working on um, on the software for your schedules of condition and actually Michael that's something I never actually talked to you about but um, um, our Passport Pro customers have been asking us for ages for a tool to help them um, with their scheduling and um, so we've developed something on phones so that they can take pictures and dictate on their phone one device and it automatically inserts the pictures into the report with the relevant condition, avoiding the hassle of, you know, after site visit, you come back to the office and you have to go through hundreds of pictures and decide which one, which one goes to which condition. Um, so, uh, so we've been busy developing that. And um, the second reason is also because I actually wanted to, to have this, this podcast. And we've been talking about this for nearly a year, I think. And of course, yeah. with public consultation and all that, it took, it took ages. So, um, so I'm, I'm really excited to have Michael Cooper with us, who's, um, as you probably already know, um, head of Neighbourly Matters at Colliers International, and um, and you were the uh, chairperson of the working group, right, on, on this seventh edition. That's right. Um, yes. Yes. So so the purpose of or the the subject matter of this um, this podcast is the RICS seventh edition um, party wall. Um, Note, uh, guidance note, who will, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, be effective on the 1st of December this year. Right, so, um, and uh, so, yes, this this podcast is more of a kind of lecture format as opposed to Q&A because um, Michael has a lot of good stuff to deliver, but I, I hope we can cover kind of where the 7th edition is coming from what the changes are, and maybe kind of a, a good good way of explaining to our audience what they need to know in order to implement um, the seventh edition. So um, I hope this is a, a good enough introduction, Michael. Thank you. Sorry about that. I was a fan going off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. It was. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So um, where do you want to start? Um, so yeah, I. I Maybe, how did you get involved? How did you end up? Um... Yeah. Uh, well, well, okay, so essentially the RCS, as I'm sure you're aware, is uh, currently split into a number of faculties. Um, so that includes building surveying, uh, land surveying, quantity surveying, uh, etc. Um, now, I can't claim to know anything about the inner workings of the RCS. Uh, suffice to say that I think each faculty head um, takes a certain uh, responsibility for ensuring that uh, guidance is kept up to date. Um, and to do this, they select a team of advisors from uh, development area of the profession. Um, and um, I happen to be on the RICS uh, Boundaries and Party Wall panel, um, which actually comes under the uh, faculty of uh, Lansdowne. Um, so it was decided uh, essentially by this panel, um, uh, down to the advice of myself and another practicing party also uh, uh, that we should um, 
consider a revision to the sixth edition of the RCS guidance note, um, uh, following a little bit of online criticism and some relevant criticism of the, the, the old guide. Um, changes being born mostly out of commentary on, on case law. Um, so uh, uh, I was tasked, um, along with Andrew, to, to form a working group um, to essentially relook at the guide um, and, um, and see if it needed any adjustments. So that's uh, for want of a better description where it started. Okay. Yeah. And how long did this all take? Right, uh, well, I would say um, 15 months or so. Right. Uh, start to finish. Um, so once we formed the initial working group, um, we basically set an agenda of trying to meet once a month. Um, and we uh, initially put in, I think, eight meetings in hope that that would be enough. Um, it proved that that wasn't going to be enough. Um, it took, I think, about 15 meetings in the end. Um, but once the working party had formed and we got together, we, we actually sort of subdivided some tasks. We went away in smaller groups and came back with our uh, small group conclusions on certain things. Um, but on the whole, we literally sat in uh, somebody's office for four hours a time and, uh, and went through the old guide page by page, comment by comment, um, and added in a few new things of our own. Um, you'll note that there's a new draft of the wall, for instance, in the back. Um, uh, mostly at the insistence of Nick Isaacs. Met with a lot of resistance initially from us surveyors who don't like changing things. Uh, but then we saw the sense of it, and uh, uh, after you know, much sort of to and fro, came to a conclusive document in the and that everybody's happy with. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, quite a long time. Um, there is a whole process behind it as well, because the RICS um, needs to also consider the document, uh, consider the, uh, uh, the the commentary in the context of uh, giving wider advice to surveyors on ethical codes, conduct, etc. Um, so there was a consultation period with them as well before the public consultation. Um, and then, of course, there was a roadshow, which I think you're, you're aware of, yeah. which around the whole country. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, so let's get into the meat of things. Mm. Um, how do you want to cover that? Do you want to cover the, the, the main changes? Do you have a list of certain changes you want to cover? Do you uh, you not know, want to cover everything? Um, um, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a few little notes I've made for myself, just yeah. to see, but I'm not going to read them verbatim. But, uh, I think probably the starting point is to look at why we started this originally in the RICS committee. Um, and I think that was, um, that was born out of um, uh, uh, the Lee Valley in Derbyshire case. Um, and essentially there was some criticism of the draft award in the appendix of the uh, edition six. And the criticism there was related to um, the ability to ask for um, making good as opposed to compensation in lieu of damages associated with party will work. Now, the last draft, um, let, now let's be clear here, the, the appendices and the whole guide is the guidance document. Um, unfortunately, people do have a tendency to copy certain clauses 
verbatim and consider them appropriate because they are in the recommended guide. And I'll take a good example of this. Um, scaffolding clauses have seen them appear in awards related to Section 6, which is foundation work. Now, clearly, there's no scaffolding needed to dig a hole. Um, so uh, people, unfortunately, copy the clauses. And in this particular case, I think it crawls went in to say that making good um, as opposed to uh, compensation in lieu was an appropriate remedy. Um, that, that was a standard clause in the old draft award. Um, let's be clear here, the actual remedy um, is only available for making good under sections, uh, and I'll read them, 22A, E, F, G, H and J. Um, all other clauses, the remedy is under section 11A for compensation. Um, so the clause of allowing and making good, and I think it's in relation to section 6 award, if I'm not mistaken, um, section, the remedy for making good is not available under the Act um, for that particular section of work. Uh, the remedy is compensation for damages. Um, so the award read that making good was the required remedy, and that was ultraviolet, or so outside of the Act. Um, and the, the, the old draft award within the RCF standard uh, permitted that. Um, uh, essentially, it should have been edited by the surveyors in question, but it essentially repeated it verbatim. And I think the judge had a heavy criticism of the RCF draft. I think what you'll see now in the current draft is we do say, please look at these documents and edit them appropriately for the use that you intend to place upon them. And so that, that essentially was the first and probably main criticism of the old guide that came through mostly for online conversations. You know, there's, there's some sort of LinkedIn uh, you know, forums, etc., for part of all of those. And, and quite rightly so, I think it was worth uh, reiterating that that clause wasn't necessarily always relevant. And so edit clauses. So one of the things I said that we put in the guide was an emphasis on editing clauses, but we've also made distinction between the making of uh, availability and the um, uh, compensation in lieu. Um, so that was that was where it started. Um, so uh, okay, let's let's um, let's look at some of the other changes. Do, do you want me to carry on or? Yes, please. Right. Okay. I'm taking notes as well. So I would also say that um, uh, another significant area, probably not, not the most significant one, um, was the emphasis on ethics. Um, and the guide focuses some immediate attention in the opening chapters on rules of the RFCS and rules of conduct. And I think it's particularly important, and we have emphasised um, the certain rules that survivors should be familiar with. And it should come as no surprise that um, we don't have a special status because we're acting under statute. Um, we still have to perform our duties to the codes of the RSCS. Um, and this has been emphasised. Um, and rule three, members show at all times act with integrity and avoid conflicts of interest and avoid any actions or situations that are inconsistent with their professional obligations. Rule four, uh, which was members should carry out professional work with due uh, skill, care and diligence and with proper regard for the technical standards expected of them. And Rule 5, 
members should carry out their professional work in a timely manner and with proper regard for standards of service and customer care expected of them. And I would say, and this is also stated, and I'll read this because I think this is a particularly important part of the guide, where an RSS member is appointed as a party rule surveyor, there should be a real benefit to the customer in terms of the requisite competence, ethical behaviour and customer care of an RSS member. Uh, that's something that's very strongly on my agenda at the moment um, to ensure the, the ethical standards of practising surveyors are not overlooked or overshadowed by the uh, statutory provisions and that we must maintain this level of customer care, put our, our reputation and our professional body above the rest uh, because essentially we undergo years of training to become chartered surveyors um, to take our charter, we have we start with degrees. We, as you know, we, we have to sit through professional tests of competence, and then we sit and pass our charter. Um, and part of that charter, and what sets us aside from the rest, is our ethical standards and our rules of conduct. Um, our, the, the fact that we have to carry PI insurance, for instance, um, it's essential for RSS surveyors. It may not be essential for people that don't have professional qualification. Um, and that is what sets us aside. So this is an RSS guide for RSS members reminding them of that fact. And that I think is very important. Moving on, because that's a little bit of a hobby course. Um, but that, nevertheless, the RSS guide now covers it. Um, I've mentioned before the requirements to make good. And, and of course we've made a lot of revisions throughout the guide on making good clauses. And specifically identified what those clauses are. Um, we have uh, mentioned the Lee Valley case. Um, now, you may see very few mentions during the guide of um, uh, court decisions. And the reason for that is that most of the decisions that we have on party rule matters are in the county courts. And uh, they're not necessarily binding, they can be overturned at the future by a higher court. Um, so, to report them within the RSS guide, um, could be an error because we could go to publication and a week later a different county court or a high court judge may have a different opinion. Um, so we have cited cases where the decisions are finalised by a high court. Um, so they are binding decisions. Okay. Um, so although we have, you know, using our own sort of, uh, let me let me explain. The the panel is made up from um, charter surveyors. Um, Barristers, uh, one of whom just recently taken silk, um, a member of uh, a, uh, a university, a university lecturer, and um, and uh, both young and old surveyors. And I might just emphasise that as well, young and old. And one of the criticisms that was that, and this is an online criticism, that we're all a bunch of old fuddy buddies. Now I don't think I'm that old, but um, we have particularly younger. Uh, surveyors on the panel, but obviously with some experience, so they need experience to be able to advise on a panel like this. Um, so, Jack Norton, I'm sure you've interviewed already, um, were both very helpful in the production of this document and added some help um, for you know, some sections where perhaps some of us are stuck in our ways a little bit and resistant to change. So um, I don't think we can be criticised for that anymore. Yeah. No, I've got the list here, and it's true. It's um, it's, yeah. quite, um, it's quite some uh, 
some important players on there? Well, certainly, um, you know, we've got a barrister or two um, mm. who are very familiar with passing legislation and backed in some fairly um, significant landmark cases. Um, I would suggest that um, that their influence was was paramount to this document being actually, you know, uh, something that we could reasonably rely on, and I hope that the courts can reasonably rely on as well as a quite a secure starting point for uh, behaviour and, um, uh, and uh, uh, if you like, um, uh, expected standards of party also there. Yeah. Um, do you want to carry yes. on? Yes, please. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, uh, we, we emphasise um, in the guidance well, the difference between uh, contractual appointments and statutory appointments. Um, and I think it's important, and we did emphasise this as well, particularly for building land surveyors, um, the, the importance of supplying terms and uh, conditions of business. Um, it's an RSS requirement, and um, I think sometimes overlooked because uh, there's a statutory appointment under the Act, but there are also terms of business that need to be supplied. Um, now, I'd, I'd like to mention... Uh, and there's a particularly useful section as well in 751, I think, uh, which deals with surveyors' fees. And this particular is an additional word, and it said, a surveyor may wish to make an owner aware that an adjoining owner may be exposed to costs if, for instance, they make excessive demands on either of the surveyors or give rise by their actions to additional and unnecessary time such as incurring surveyors in additional time for making abortive visits. Um, now that I'd like to stress because a lot of people have this misconception that it's the developing owner that pays. That's not always the case. In fact, Section 22B of the Act uh, provides for uh, the surveyors to determine, uh, you know, the, the, um, this is in relation to awarding defects or want of repair. So it gives the surveyors the right to determine who should pay, who is responsible, who's responsible for the defect or lack of repair, um, and who should pay a proportion of the cost. And it may be that that cost is shared. But let's also be clear, there are some owners, uh, joint owners, that may want to frustrate the process. Now, the Party Wall Act is an enabling act, enabling the construction by one owner, um, and you know, within the parameters provided by the act, there are certain things that they can do. 13 permitted rights under Section 2, um, Section 6 rights and Section 1 rights. Um, the frustrations of us, an owner next door, who may not want the work to go ahead, that steps into trying to do anything they can to delay and frustrate the process. Well, they should be aware, and they should be made aware very early on by the surveyor, that they may be liable for the costs, or part of the costs, if that is what they are doing. Um, so, unfair to label any owner with that tag, but it's worth reminding them that if you are called out on a claim of potential damage, but the damage already existed, for instance, you know, who should pay for your time? Well, rightly or wrongly, um, it should be them if they are calling you out on a spurious claim or maybe an unneeded claim. Clear and aware of their own property as well. There's preconditions that are taken, for instance, that will help them to determine whether or not they need to call you out on that issue. So Most of those were after a second visit. 
So sorry. So so how do you communicate that to your to your owner? So so that you because you were talking about T's and C's. So you yeah. you would put something like that in your T's and C's saying. I do. I do. I have uh, I have some paragraphs uh, set out in uh, covering letters, um, which accompany terms and conditions, setting out and explaining exactly that. That if if I am called out on a on a claim that is, you know, if you like irrelevant, not part of the act, or called, and, and they haven't made an attempt to, in the first instance, sort of discuss it with their neighbours or remedy the situation, and it turns out that it's an error mission, then I may be charging them for that time. Um, that, to be clear, I'm not going to call them out if they're just a bit worried, if it's not a lady that says she's got to be taxed and wasn't too clear on the idea, uh, but will I need to look at it? I think I'll do that out of kindness on my own heart. But um, there are some owners that will insist that you come out every five minutes, um, and and wrongly so as well. It does happen. So I think it's right to set that out, that they could be liable for those costs when taking instructions. Okay. Okay. So so that's specifically mentioned in this in the seventh edition, saying you guys are responsible to communicate that to your owners. Yeah, uh, and also we suggested um, following the Mohammed uh, um, and Laurie Antino and Stevens case, um, that, and I'll read this, the prudent surveyor should secure terms and conditions for the owners for the possibility of a matter being withdrawn by consent and he's having incurred costs in advance of the reward being made. Um, so now what we meant by that is that um, there's a possibility that the surveyors may be engaged to settle a matter in dispute, um, and perhaps after an inspection, that there's not too much of a, a matter to be had in their wives, their owners accordingly, and the owners then withdraw the matter of consent. Well, the surveyors have incurred some costs in this process. Um, so, as suggested, and it was followed that case, um, it would be prudent for the surveyors to actually have set out that they will charge if it is going to be removed by consent so that they have the ability to recover their time costs. Um, there is then a contractual relationship on the owner who withdraws the matter by consent. So the consent probably should be with conditions that the owner will meet the costs that they've incurred to date um, when they remove it. So that's appropriate advice, I think, to give both owners and surveyors in that context. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, so we have concentrated a few, a bit of effort on surveyor's fees, uh, terms and conditions, uh, how to sort of secure that appointment, understanding that it's not always the joint amount that pays the costs. Um, again, something new to the to the new guide. Um, I hope that's helpful for surveyors. Yeah. Can we carry on? <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so, as I said, one of the main changes. Um, the guy suggested was a, a revised draft award, and I give him full credit for pushing this ahead. Um, the surveyors don't like radical change, and it appeared in the first instance that the first draft that he put forward was quite radical. Um, after we examined it, we realised it was pretty much the same thing, it was just slightly reordered. And what it does is it separates those matters that we can award and those matters that we want to mention because it helps the award. Now, I'll give you an example, for instance, we can't award um, uh, special foundation consent. Um, uh, previously, I think in our section four, we said we, we, we tried to throw it in somewhere within the award that there is a special foundation consent. Um, we can't award that. That's the, owner, that's the owner's privilege to say yes or no to that. Um, but we can mention it. 
So in the introduction part of the award, there's a, there's a section now to identify those matters that you've relied upon to make your award, but they're not part of the actual award itself or section of the difference. I.e., we have made this award on the basis that special foundation consent has been given, and this is where we're going to say that, in a separate section to our award, and we're going to carry on and make the award then that the foundations, etc., uh, uh, as per the drawings attached. Um, so, essentially, we're separating out those matters that were within our control from those that are not. I think it's a much more robust document than the last draft. Um, it can be varied by surveyors. I know that many surveyors have their own form of award that they prefer to use. Um, I think it's important to see what those changes are, and I would suggest that surveyors start adopting some of those changes, because um, it has been looked at by legal heads, as well as surveyors, um, we did conflict slightly too, um, and I'll give you an example where we conflicted. It was on the signature pages. Um, now, uh, apparently, an award probably doesn't need witnessing. It's also questionable as to ever actually were any signing by surveyors. Mm -hmm. um, we decided to leave those in, uh, mostly at the insistence of surveyors who felt it was appropriate to record the date. And, and, and indeed their signature that they had approved that document, so as to not to confuse it with previous drafts. Um, the witnessing signature block, again, not essential, but a, it's a recognised industry standard that most of us put into our awards. I would have no problem signing an award that didn't have a witness block. Um, it's not essential, but it does help, and it also helps, I think, in litigation, if it ever arises, that the judges or the people examining that award have the confidence in knowing that the surveyors did actually sign it and that somebody saw them sign it when they said that they signed it. Um, and I think that's particularly important now with one of the other main changes we focused on, which was the electronic communications bill. Mm -hmm. uh, which came into force and has amended the Act. It's a piece of legislation has brought about two changes in the Act itself, in Section 15, I think. Uh, if I misquoted that, forgive me. Um, but uh, there are two new sections relating to electronic communications. Uh, a word of warning goes out on that one. Um, and this is personal thought. Um, I am concerned that if, uh, particularly if an owner doesn't agree to receive something electronically, and perhaps doesn't acknowledge receipt electronically, then uh, it could be questionable as to whether or not they received it, or, uh, it is, or that it was a correct form of uh, publication of an award, for instance, or even notice. Um, so I'd be very cautious of using that without consent and acknowledgement. Um, and I would recommend there are providers out there that can uh, give a red receipt um, or acknowledgement receipts to important documentation. Um, so the electronic communication bill, there's some hint that there's the possibility that there will be further cases in relation to the use of electronic communications for publication of important documents like awards. Um, so I, I will wait to see what the courts decide in a matter of years. Um, but again, so it does introduce new sections relating to electronic communication because it is new, something that wasn't previously in the act at all. So. Okay. So for for the moment, 
um, from a kind of practical perspective, you would recommend surveyors to try to get consent being served electronically and make sure that if they do, that the owners actually send an email back saying, I have rec received it. Thank you very much. Absolutely, yes. I, I think that's very important. Particularly, um, I, I think particularly important because the, the date of uh, receipt, as it were, uh, electronically, is the start of the uh, appeal period, the 14-day period for appealing an award. Mm. Um, and I think it's important to recognise that some people may not open their emails every day, um, that there is a potential conflict between uh, the, the, the time sent and time received, although apparently it's instant, um, but it can take some time sometimes. I don't know if you've had that delay, somebody sitting on the end of the phone saying, I've sent it to you, and it's, it turns out 10 minutes later. Mm. Um, but not only that, um, I, I also think that um, there's, there's a possibility of error, um, and you type the address incorrectly, put a full stop in the wrong place, it's very easily done, um, and it's never received, uh, but you think it has been. And that poor owner is sitting there without the wall, suddenly to find that you sent it to the wrong email address. So, for your own protection as a surveyor, I'd strongly recommend that you get a receipt acknowledgement from whoever it is that you're sending it to. But certainly, they need to have um, a proof that they're going to receive it in that manner in the first instance. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's something that could be included in, in Party Wall Pro. Just thinking. Yeah, it's quite likely. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Good. Next point. That's because that's obviously well. Do you have points, more points um, regarding the award itself? Um, or, because well, is it from? Sorry, again, from a, a practical perspective, do you suggest the audience to just go and have a look at the seventh edition? Go and have a look at this award. And 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 think for themselves. And we have made that absolutely clear as well that this is a suggestive document. Mm. It's right, and um, it's it's good practice. It's been looked at very very carefully by the panel, um, surveyors, as I said, solicitors, barristers, um, and and others, um, and and members of the RICS as well. This is a good practice guide. Um, and essentially this document is is very robust. I'm very, very pleased with the outcome. I was one of those that was very resistant to it initially, so, uh, but I'm very, very pleased with the outcome. Um, and I, I would say it's a must read. Have a look. Um, have a look at how it's composed. Um, try it. Um, I, strangely enough, had my first one through just the other day. Yeah. Uh, and I read through it and I thought, well, this, really, this is fantastic because I actually, I can see where everything goes and it all seems to be in the right place. Whereas before it was a bit muddled. Um, I'm not suggesting that the previous draft was necessarily wrong, it was just muddled. Um, this, this is clearer and it does make a distinction between those matters that surveyors can award and those matters that, yeah, for instance, who the owners are, who the surveyors are, etc are separated from the actual uh, determination of the dispute. No. Uh, there's one thing I would like to go back on, because you started with schedules condition, you mentioned you know, mm -hmm. your services, etc. Um, we added a clause in, um, and this is in, we did this because there's been much debate as to whether or not 
a condition survey is required. Um, my view on this is that a condition survey is, is almost essential. Um, and not least because it enables you the opportunity to visit the adjacent property. When you visit the adjacent property, whether you're acting as a joint land surveyor or building land surveyor, then you can determine the nature and construction of that building. And you can understand then the risks that there are associated with the building owner's works. If you don't carry out that visit, how are you to know what that structure is composed of? So it could be made of glass. And if you're sitting behind the desk and don't visit that property, you cannot determine whether or not the building owner's work is going to have an unnecessary effect on that adjacent structure. So let's be clear, you need to visit. And you also need to understand the internal workings of that property. So those naysayers that say don't do conditions there, it's not in the act. Well, frankly, how are you going to make your determinations if you don't understand the nature of that property next door? Um, so we have put a clause in, and I'll read it again if I may. The appointed surveyor should understand the construction, fabric, and condition of the adjacent owner's property before making an award. And if necessary, visit both owner's properties that understand the consequence of the awarded works. Um, and that's a clause which um, was very carefully considered by the panel and felt appropriate by all um, that this is something that surveyors should do. Um, and so, going back to where you started, conditions elevated are, in my view, a requirement of good practice as part of all surveys. Okay. But the form, the form is now, there was, wasn't it in the sixth edition, wasn't there something about schedules, saying specifically how they should look or something, and, and the sixth well, edition is not well, Yeah, and um, we, we corrected that, frankly, we don't think we need to tell chartered suppliers how to do a schedule condition. Um, not, not least, that everybody has a different way of writing schedules, um, you, you know, you suggested that you can actually do it with a a camera dictaphone of some description, um, which is great. Um, things are moving forward. Uh, electronic means are, you know, and maybe to do things better, perhaps, um, in certain ways. So I'm not opposed to that. Um, and to just put a standard formula that people feel they have to follow because it's in the guide, um, I think it's inappropriate. I think surveyors know how to do condition surveys. We didn't feel it was necessary to put it back in. Yeah. I'm looking at my notes now from uh, from the roadshow because uh, uh, you know, there are quite a significant number of minor changes within the document as well. Mm -hmm. uh, some of which was born out of uh, discussion on words used or terminology. Um, we had 130 responses of public consultation, and we took on board every single one of those comments. Um, some we addressed, some we didn't. Um, I'm sure you can understand, we had a few time wasters in there as well. Um, we had already considered a lot of the questions in advance um, and, and in our own determination, so we felt that we'd already covered those. We did make a few changes, um, and I think uh, I think it's important to recognise that um, the terminology that we've used is intended to be surveyor friendly. Um, it may not be strictly in accordance with the terminology used in the Act. We are being user-friendly in the guide. 
And so that type of criticism really isn't very helpful. We did have a lot of that from one or two particular individuals um, who I won't mention. Um, uh, there, there are changes in the uh, that we try to improve the drawings, for instance. Uh, no doubt there will be some level of criticism on that because uh, drawing technology isn't that brilliant. Um, we, we did have some help from uh, our some uh, CAD technicians that helped us put some new drawings together. Um, we changed some standard letters, um, a drawing known as appointment letters, building known as appointment letters, and so on. We made provisions for electronic communications. Um, we changed the draft award, which I'm sure I've mentioned. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I have to say thank you very much for changing all this because that means that I, and I've, I've been actually looking at the award already um, because the Party Award Pro generating all these documents. I'm going to have to adapt everything because uh, we, we, we're going to be we're going to be seventh edition ready on on the first of December. Um, but so yeah, so I've got a lot of work ahead of me. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, well, it comes in force on the first of uh, yes, first of December. I think. Yeah. So, so it is the seventh edition, August two thousand eighteen. I've got a copy in front of me. It is available now to RSS members for their usual subscription, um, and I'm sure it will become public public document. If it isn't already. Um, I think it is, yeah, oh, it is. Um, yeah. yeah. It's already up there. So, so you covered, you covered what, six points, five, six points? So, um, the making good, ethics, ethics obviously is something that is, um, is, is, is something that should already be out there. So, it's, it's just putting down on paper the, the obvious, but um, um, yeah, for some people it's not that obvious. Um, T's and C's. So that, that's that's something that obviously is more would require um, to take to take a few steps for people who have actually never thought of that. Um, mm -hmm. The draft award. That's that's obviously that's a, that's a lot of work for everyone if they want to implement it and and yeah. they need to do their homework. Um, schedule of conditions. So that's I, I, I'm actually quite surprised because I, I thought you know um, doing a condition survey was Kind of everyone would, would do it, but I, I guess I guess not. Some people are just too lazy to get in the car and go on site. <laughs> yeah, <I'm not> <laughs> <laughs> um, and any anything else you want to you want to add to, to try and get get more of a you know what you know the survey out there that that wants to wants to be seventh edition compliant. Um, it's obviously yeah. getting. Getting their hands on on the seventh edition first. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, look at. I would suggest that they look at all of the proposed standard documents at the back in the appendix. But it's it's worth having a thorough read all the way through. Um, as I say, almost every, every single section of the old edition was reviewed. Um, I think almost every section had some revision of some kind. Um, so there there isn't. Under a main section, I don't think there's any one section that went without uh, amend. Um, I think it's important for surveyors to keep up to date, and um, I think it's essential for particle surveyors to be familiar with uh, current thinking and case law, um, and uh, things that are changing the environment in which we're working. The particle legislation itself doesn't evolve. It doesn't change. Although I haven't said that, the electronic communications bill did amend it. Um, the, I think, however, the, the Act 
being unchanging is changed by case law. Um, so we have uh, methods of working now that we've adopted from case law, and also construction techniques are changing constantly. So I think it's important for surveyors to keep up to date with case law, uh, guidance notes, and uh, other essential reads written by uh, solicitors or, or barristers, um, you know, uh, articles on LinkedIn and things like that. Um, I too often come across building surveyors um, who feel that they should engage on party wall matters, but we're limited on our experience. Um, and I would suggest that, uh, that they should be very cautious of doing so without understanding the wider concepts involved and perhaps the case law and the history of the legislation and how we got to where we are. Um, because it's about the interpretation of a piece of legislation. It's not just about using a guide and following it verbatim. You have to think. And this guide, I think, emphasises the need to think by surveyors and not just follow it verbatim. They need to think for themselves and apply it to the circumstances. So um, that, that's essentially what I'm going to hold there. Think, use it but use it wisely, you know, consider what those draft documents say and which bits may change it. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's, a, that's a great great way to conclude, um, right. conclude this yes. podcast. <laughs> um, if, um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you with questions and stuff, do you want to? I'm happy to, I'm always happy to answer questions. I, I um, participate in the Pyramids of Disney online consultation, so uh, when questions come through, uh, the Pyramid Statistics Club often directs them towards me, uh, the RICS as well, and uh, I'm happy to take questions from surveyors or, or owners on aspects of the Act where I can help. I will. I can't promise I can provide all the answers, but I can certainly try. Okay, perfect. Well, that's, thanks, thanks a lot. Your email address is out there anyway, so uh, sure. I don't need yeah. to give it out. Um, Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. And um, I'll see you around. Bye. Bye then.